Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, I'm Mark. Uh, There's no Bethan this week unfortunately, it's just me. Uh, We just couldn't find the time to um, record together. It's very rare that it happens but uh, these have been super busy weeks for both of us. So we'll very much be back to normal next week, it will be both of us I promise. Uh, But for this week only, you're just going to have to put up with just me. So before we venture into today's episode, I just wanted to thank our most recent patrons. Um, So the following people have signed up in the last week or so. That's Kieran Hale, Jennifer, Caitlin Mannion, Joanna Picard, Ollie Foley, Lucy Osman, Chrissa Swain Randolph, and also Janine Sangendo increased her pledge. Thank you so much, all of you guys, and thanks so much, Janine, for... Uh, for increasing your pledge it's much appreciated there's loads of you over there now so if if anybody does want to sign up and access the bonus content if you want a bit of welcome merchandise then you can head over to patreon.com slash seeing red podcast and you can sign up just for a month or a bit longer if you want to and we have just released our most recent bonus patreon episode which was a bit of a retrospective on season one. So Bethan and I sat down for, I think it was about three quarters of an hour, and we talked about season one, some of the cases that we covered, why we covered them, what the behind-the-scenes story of those cases was, and in some of the cases, actually, what happened afterwards, which was very interesting. So um, join us for that. You can head over to Patreon and sign up. Uh, It just takes two minutes, and your support is massively, massively appreciated. Okay, so we don't have any sponsors this week. Uh, We're going to dive straight in. It's a case that you will most likely be familiar with, particularly if you are from the UK, but you might not know all of the details. And it's a case that has fascinated me and also Beth. And it's a case uh, we've spoken about and we've referenced in the show through many different episodes. So we always knew that we were going to get to a point where we had to cover it. Dewsbury is an historic market town in the metropolitan borough of Kirklees in West Yorkshire. Skirting along the River Calder, it is situated to the west of Wakefield, east of Huddersfield and south of Leeds. The town made its bones in the mid-19th century by undergoing a period of major growth as a mill town. However, the town was ultimately unable to maintain its rapid trajectory. The heavy impact of World War II and the rapid birthing of bigger and better industries triggered an exceptionally long period of decline which the town has never fully recovered from. Over the years, Dewsbury has been labelled as a troubled town and it's received mainly negative press. Made up of mainly council estates, some areas within the town are classified as some of the most deprived areas in the UK. Most houses in the town are in the cheapest band for council tax and house prices are amongst the lowest in the country. Until only recently, the burglary rate in Dewsbury was twice that of the national average. Between 1975 and 1980, Dewsbury was thrown into the media spotlight once again for all the wrong reasons when a Yorkshire man named Peter Sutcliffe, aka the Yorkshire Ripper, terrorised the town by murdering 13 women and attempting to murder seven others. After Sutcliffe was captured and put away, the troubled town of Dewsbury breathed a huge sigh of relief and they tried to put this horrific event behind them. But 
Thirty years later, the media focus was once again back on them, arguably for reasons which were equally as horrific as before. On the 19th of February in 2008, nine-year-old Shannon Louise Matthews was reported missing after she failed to arrive home from school. Her mother, Karen Matthews, tearfully told police responders that her and Shannon had gotten into a heated argument that morning and Shannon had left the house for school in a distressed state. The police initially suspected that Shannon had simply run away from home, but Karen was adamant from the outset that this was not the case and that Shannon had been abducted. Regardless, police were immediately concerned for Shannon's welfare. Not only was the child missing on the dark and dangerous streets of Dewsbury, but the conditions outside were particularly harsh. It was February, it was dark, frosty, it was a winter's night and the temperature that evening was anticipated to fall to four degrees below zero. Police feared that if Shannon were outside and had no protection from the elements, she would almost certainly be struck down by hypothermia. Piecing together Shannon's last known movements, investigators learned that the argument that Karen Matthews had described to police had started the previous evening and had then continued into the next morning as Shannon was leaving for school. It is understood that Karen had lost her temper with Shannon and as she left the house for school, neighbours heard Karen shout, Get out of the house and don't come back. Police later learned that such arguments between Karen and Shannon were in no way uncommon. It also later emerged that Shannon was known to the local social services after her teachers had raised concerns about her general welfare. They were mainly worried about Shannon's general inability to focus on reading and writing for long periods of time, and she often showed up to school tired and drowsy. Her face, body and hands were often dirty, and her clothes never seemed to be washed either. Taking this into account, Sharon and her younger siblings were placed on the at-risk register and their overall welfare was being monitored by a social worker. On the morning of her disappearance, Shannon was visibly distressed as she began walking her usual half-mile route to school, but she soon perked up as she entered the main gates. Her class was scheduled to attend a swimming lesson at a local leisure centre that day and Shannon was said to have been extremely excited for weeks prior to this. Shannon's friends later told investigators that she'd seemed more distant than her usual self as they rode the bus to the swimming baths that day. But once they entered the pool, Shannon began to giggle excitedly and seemed to really enjoy herself. Afterwards, the bus dropped Shannon and her classmates off at the main school gates at just after three o'clock and Shannon was seen leaving the bus, but nobody was able to recollect in which direction she walked as she left. And this was the last known sighting of Shannon. Her family, teachers and closest friends were never to see her again. When Shannon failed to return home after school, her mother Karen Matthews alerted the police. They arrived at 7.15pm. Karen was out searching for Shannon at the time, so the police were met by Shannon's stepfather, Craig Meehan, and her three siblings. The first thing the police noticed about the house was that it was filthy. The environment was extremely cluttered with trash, clothes, shoes and other random objects littered all around the place. There was no ventilation and the house reeked strongly of weed and cigarette smoke. 
The kitchen had takeaway containers and dirty dishes stacked up everywhere. When Karen Matthews returned home shortly afterwards, she tearfully sat down with police and began to answer their questions. Karen explained that there had been some domestic arguments within the household recently, but she remained strangely adamant that Shannon had been kidnapped as opposed to simply running away from home. When police asked if they could conduct a routine search of the house, Shannon's stepfather, Craig Meehan, became immediately angry and defensive demanding to know what exactly the police were accusing them of. Weathering Meehan's unusual response, the officers calmly explained that if Shannon had opted to run away from home, they would be searching for clues as to where Shannon may have gone. Meehan seemed to relax a bit after that. When officers searched Shannon's room, they found some of her handwriting scrawled on the wall in small lettering, and it read, I want to live with my dad. Karen explained that Shannon had been unhappy due to the family's constant in-house fighting and that she'd expressed that she had wanted to leave the family home to go and live with her biological father, Leon. Karen also told officers that Leon and Shannon used to see each other often, but recently Karen and Leon had fallen out over child support payments and much to Shannon's heartbreak, Karen had blocked all contact between them. Officers visited Leon's home to see if Shannon had simply gone there, but there was no sign of her. Her father was genuinely devastated when he was told that his daughter was missing, and he immediately headed over to Dewsbury to aid the search for his daughter. By this time, almost all of Karen's local friends and relatives had gathered to carry out an organised search for Shannon. Despite the freezing winter temperatures outside, the team of more than a 100 local Dewsbury residents searched the streets and fields throughout the night and well into the following day. However, not a single trace of Shannon was found. Now, statistically, it is exceedingly rare for children to go missing for more than one day and almost three quarters of missing children are found within 24 hours. However, as time ticks along, the chances of them returning home safely become increasingly slim, particularly if the missing child is vulnerable, as was the case here. It is said that the first 72 hours after a child goes missing are the most crucial. The numbers show that after this time, the missing child is rarely ever seen alive again. The police were now under immense pressure to locate Shannon. Not only were they aware that the 72-hour deadline was getting closer, but there were also other factors involved here. Only nine months prior, in 2007, the entire UK had become embroiled in the worldwide search for Madeleine McCann, a middle-class toddler who went missing from a holiday resort whilst on holiday with her family in Portugal. To say that the McCann case was a media storm would be a huge understatement, as almost every news outlet in Europe and afar covered the story in real time in a unified campaign to locate Maddie and to bring her home alive. By the time Shannon went missing in 2008, the nation's hopes of ever finding Maddie alive were quickly fading away. And of course to this day, Madeleine McCann has never been found. Her fate remains a mystery. Maybe that's something we need to cover pretty soon. So naturally, when Shannon went missing, the media were quick to report on it. And once again, the nation was gripped by yet another little lost girl. And all eyes were now on the police working the case. 
As the 24-hour mark passed, there was still no sign of Shannon. Police investigators were forced to face up to the grim possibility that Shannon was not just a runaway as they had first thought, that she may have been abducted. With a dogged determination, the police utilised just about every resource they could get their hands on, and the search became their number one priority. Officers questioned more than 1,500 motorists and searched more than 3,000 houses in the local area. More than 250 officers and 60 detectives were involved in the investigation, which was equal to about 10% of the size of West Yorkshire Police Force's entire operational strength. Helicopters equipped with specialist heat-seeking technology constantly droned overhead. Even police cadets from a nearby officer training academy were deployed to lend a hand. Search dogs were also used. Of the 27 specialist victim recovery dogs in the whole of the UK, 16 were involved purely in the search for Shannon. It soon became the largest police investigation in West Yorkshire since the Yorkshire Ripper 30 years earlier. Outside of the police, countless hundreds of Dewsbury residents also volunteered their time and personal resources to band together and support the police to help them locate Shannon. The community printed thousands of flyers with Shannon's picture on them and distributed these far and wide. Local businesses and a few well-known British tabloid newspapers offered up a large financial reward for anyone who was able to find Shannon. The reward money was initially £20,000, but in a matter of days it had been increased to 50000 Meanwhile, Karen Matthews was a mess. At first, she avoided the media and stayed behind closed doors with Craig and her children. Police visited her regularly to ask further questions that might aid in their search for Shannon. Eventually, Karen appeared outside her house to address the swarms of journalists who had gathered. Looking distressed and dishevelled with dark rings around her puffy eyes, Karen addressed the cameras directly and pleaded, Shannon, if you are out there, please come home. We love you to bits, we miss you so much. We love you so much, please come home. Days passed and the police were coming up with nothing. No clues, no suspects, no working theories, nothing. With the McCann case still fresh in the memories of the British public, the immense pressure on the police to find Shannon grew more intense literally by the hour. Behind the scenes, police explored the possibility that whoever had taken Shannon may have been someone that she knew. With Karen's help, investigators began to put together a comprehensive list of Shannon's family members and also of their closest family friends. Every single person on the list about 350 individuals, was interviewed separately, but it did little to help the police get any closer to finding Shannon. Two weeks passed and despite the growing sense of hopelessness that was growing around the case, the police remained relentless in their pursuit for Shannon. A press conference was held and the police conveyed to the media that they were in no way ready to give up searching for Shannon. They said they would continue to search for her for as long as is necessary. Karen Matthews again spoke to the press at this conference. This time she appeared to be in a much better state than before. She wasn't as emotional and the black rings around her eyes had faded. 
Wearing a Help Find Shannon t-shirt, she reaffirmed her belief that Shannon was alive, but that she had been abducted, probably by someone she knew. When a reporter pressed Karen on why someone she knew would do this, she responded, just to hurt me really. Shannon's stepdad Craig Meehan also spoke to reporters saying, I know people start pointing fingers at family and friends when stuff like this happens, but I had nothing to do with Shannon's disappearance. Journalists were much less merciful with Craig however, and the questions put to him were increasingly tough. He was asked to confirm or deny rumours that he had been physically violent towards Shannon. He fiercely denied that that was the case. After this conference, Karen and Craig returned home to be with their other children and await news of updates as the police continued in their search, which was clearly going nowhere. The media began to draw comparisons between the amount of publicity given to the disappearance of Madeleine McCann and the much lower level of publicity given to Shannon, and the criticisms of the overall police investigation intensified. Referring to Karen Matthews' working-class status, a blogger for The Independent explained, Kate and Jerry McCann had a lot. They were a couple of nice, middle-class doctors on holiday in an upmarket resort. Karen Matthews is not as elegant, nor as eloquent. Many suggested that there was a clear difference in the way that the Shannon Matthews case was covered and handled when compared to that of Madeleine McCann's, and that it all boiled down to systemic discrimination of the working class. Frustrations were rising and hope was beginning to fade in the search for Shannon. But then, 24 days after her disappearance, the police's determination and hard work paid off, and they had their first real breakthrough. An investigator decided to review Shannon's list of family members that had been earlier put together by Karen, and they noticed that there was one name missing. Craig Meehan's uncle, Michael Donovan. At first, it was treated as nothing special. Perhaps Karen and Craig had simply forgotten about him when they were putting the list together. Totally possible, no big deal. However, as the detective examined Michael Donovan further, things began to appear strange. Donovan lived less than a mile from Shannon, but he had been nowhere near the house throughout the entire ordeal. He'd not volunteered to search for his niece, nor had he approached the police or the family to offer information or DNA samples, as had the rest of Shannon's family. It seemed almost as though he'd made a point of staying off the radar as much as possible. It was also strange to the detectives that neither Karen nor Craig had mentioned Donovan's existence at any point of the entire investigation, despite the fact that he was a close family member who lived nearby. So, two officers were dispatched to Donovan's home to speak to him and collect his DNA samples. But when they knocked on his door, he failed to answer. The officers decided to make inquiries with Donovan's neighbours, who confirmed that Donovan was probably at home as his car was parked outside, and it was rare that he ever walked anywhere. Another neighbour who lived in the flat below Donovan's told the officers that she'd heard a child's feet shuffling around, but she said she had simply assumed that Donovan's new girlfriend must have had a child. With their adrenaline skyrocketing, the officers were convinced that they were onto something, and they immediately radioed for backup. 
Additional members of the police search team soon arrived and the group met at the bottom of the flat stairwell in order to discuss their next move. But it didn't take them long to agree on a course of action. They were going in and they were going in now. The police forcibly broke down Donovan's front door and stormed the flat. But their hearts sank when the place appeared to be empty. However, the team noticed that the flat was thick with fresh cigarette smoke. Someone was hiding there. As they searched the flat, they forced open a locked bedroom door and immediately heard a very muffled voice of a child, apparently coming from under the bed. Before the officers even had a chance to do anything, little Shannon weakly crawled out of a sliding door on the side of the solid bed frame. She looked weak, dazed and confused as she attempted to stand up. She was so unsteady on her feet that one of the officers had to literally scoop her up and carry her out of the flat and to safety. As the officer carried her, he gently asked where Donovan was. Where I was, under the bed, she replied. Michael Donovan was discovered cowering under the bed in the same compartment where Shannon had emerged and he had to be dragged kicking and screaming out of that flat as he was placed under arrest on suspicion of kidnap. Shannon was transported safely back to Dewsbury Police Station to be treated by medical professionals. As investigators further searched Donovan's flat, they discovered evidence that Shannon had been tied at the waist with a thick strap of fabric that then extended to one of the roof beams. This was used to restrict Shannon's movements when Donovan had to leave the flat, and this contraption enabled her to reach only the bathroom and her bed. They also discovered a handwritten list of rules for Shannon to follow at all times, which read, You must not make any noise or bang your feet. You must not go near the windows. You must not do anything without me being here. You must keep the TV volume low. You may play video games or watch DVDs or play music. The note ended with the letters IPU, which stood for I promise you. Exactly what Shannon had been promised is unclear. Police also discovered £600 in cash, a box of travel sickness medication and two bags full of neatly folded children's clothes in Donovan's flat. These findings suggested strongly that Donovan was about to take Shannon and flee, possibly because he'd become increasingly spooked by the intense media coverage of Shannon's disappearance. When the news spread through Dewsbury of Shannon's successful rescue, a wave of joy and relief swept the overjoyed residents, who jubilantly tore up missing posters and celebrated late into the night. Many described Shannon's rescue as the best news to have come out of Dewsbury in an awfully long time. Karen's neighbours got word of the rescue and raced to her house to tell her the news. Upon receiving the news, it is said that Karen froze on the spot and remained expressionless for a few moments before bursting into tears. Cheering and loud celebrations could be heard on almost every street in the area and many people could be seen crying tears of joy that Shannon had been found. The massive police task force that had set out to locate Shannon also allowed themselves to pop champagne bottles and celebrate a job well done. 
All told, the massive search for Shannon had cost the taxpayer £3.2 million and it had involved over 300 police officers. And to the millions of Britons who were following the case via the media, the story seemed very much cut and dry. A kidnapped girl successfully rescued by heroic policemen. Tragedy averted and a happy ending. Dewsbury was in the news for all of the right reasons for once. However, things were not as they seemed. Hidden away behind the scenes, far from the media spotlight, was a small section of the police who were quietly suspicious that something was not quite right. They could not quite put their finger on it at first, but they strongly believed right from the start that something was certainly amiss with all of this. As the investigation into Shannon's disappearance progressed, it became clear to them that the problem was with Karen. Detectives noted several times over the 24-day ordeal that Karen was quick to start crying when she was addressing the media, but off-camera she rarely showed much emotion at all. Occasionally she would even be seen laughing and exchanging banter back and forth with Craig, only to then switch to playing the part of a grief-stricken mother as soon as the police or any members of the press were around. When the news broke that Shannon had been found safe and well, Karen was pressured by her friends and relatives to leave the house and address the media. As she stood before the ocean of paparazzi photographers and news crews, she looked shell-shocked, nervous, and she turned her face away from the cameras in a way that she had not done before. She certainly did not look or act like a mother who had just found her missing child, and at this point many people began to question this odd behaviour. When the police came to Karen's house to transport her to the police station where Shannon was being cared for, the officers anticipated a barrage of questions about Shannon's welfare. But Karen didn't say a single word throughout the whole journey. She simply gazed out of the window and seemed nervous. On arrival at the police station, Karen was told by a detective that she would not be allowed to see Shannon face to face as this might compromise vital forensic evidence. Instead, Karen could see Shannon through a two-way sheet of glass. But rather than become emotional or try to call out for Shannon, Karen remained completely composed and simply stared at her daughter blankly for several minutes, eventually saying, she's got new clothes. Karen was then escorted home. With suspicion mounting heavily against Karen now, Shannon was moved into immediate care by social services and also given full-time police protection. And Karen was told that she should not expect Shannon to come home until they had fully completed their investigation. It was not just the police who had their suspicions either. Karen's friends and relatives were also growing increasingly perplexed by her nonchalant attitude surrounding recent events. Karen never once asked when Shannon was coming home, and she seemed completely fine with the fact that it had been her boyfriend's uncle who had perpetrated the kidnapping. Furthermore, Karen did not even make any calls to the police station to inquire after Shannon's welfare, or even to give her a message of love. None of Karen's behaviour made any sense whatsoever. Nothing she did or said was in any way consistent with an innocent mother who had narrowly avoided losing a child forever. Police then discovered new and much more sinister reasons to be concerned for Shannon's welfare at home. 
On April the 2nd, Shannon's stepdad, Craig Meehan, was arrested on suspicion of possessing indecent images of children, which were discovered on the hard drive after police had examined his computers. Meehan was remanded in custody by Dewsbury magistrates and charged with 11 offences of possessing indecent images of children, to which he pleaded not guilty. Much later, on the 6th of September that year, Meehan was convicted by Dewsbury magistrates of 11 counts of possessing child pornography and he was sentenced to 20 weeks in prison, although he was released immediately as he had already served that length on remand. Meanwhile, Michael Donovan was remanded in custody and questioned extensively by the police. Initially, he refused to cooperate at all, but eventually, Donovan prepared a written statement with his lawyer that implicated Karen Matthews as being the mastermind behind the kidnapping of her own daughter. He said that she had approached him with her plan and asked him to keep Shannon for several days until they were able to find a way to claim the reward money. The police decided to keep Donovan's accusation a secret until they could strengthen their case against Karen with further evidence. As mentioned before, social services already knew that Karen was an unfit mother and that her children were vulnerable. This prompted police to start scrutinising Karen's background. Karen was born and raised in Dewsbury. She finished school at the age of 16 and by the age of 17 she'd had her first baby. By the time she turned 23, she was pregnant with her third child, Shannon. And it was around this time that family and friends began to have early concerns around her apparent neglect for these children. Karen was claiming child benefits, but she apparently refused to buy proper nappies. Instead, she used strips of towel, curtain fabric or even plastic bags. The money she saved by doing this was spent on cigarettes, alcohol and junk food. After Karen split from Shannon's biological father, two more partners followed and Karen got pregnant by each of them. By the time Shannon was nine years old, Karen had seven children to six different fathers. The most recent baby was with Shannon's latest stepfather, Craig Meehan. The cycle of neglect against her children only continued and social services received more reports from concerned friends and relatives of Karen that detailed how she consistently refused to put the needs of her children ahead of her own. Reports of the children being left alone all night while Karen and Craig parted, alcoholism, domestic violence and malnourishment were all very well documented, but extraordinarily little was done about it. In fact, for reasons unknown, social services amazingly decided to remove Shannon and her siblings from the at-risk register, claiming that there was no real evidence of any risk of serious harm towards any of the children. And this was all despite more reports coming in of serious child neglect and a general failure by Karen to play the part of being a mother. It also came to light that Kate and Jerry McCann, the grieving parents of missing Madeline McCann, had also heard from several of Karen's relatives. They allegedly received dozens of calls and letters from Karen's inner circle, not just asking, but demanding that money from the Help Find Maddie Foundation Fund be donated towards Karen and her family. Apparently, the McCanns were on the verge of handing over a donation of £25,000 to Karen, but were advised against it by police when they realised what was really going on. It was not just the police who were suspicious of Karen's involvement either. 
Unaware of Donovan's statement, two of Karen's friends decided to confront her about their own suspicions. Before they carried out their plan, they alerted Karen's police liaison officer and informed her of what they were planning to say to Karen. The police liaison officer agreed to help them in their bid to get Karen to make a confession. The following day, the police liaison officer picked up Karen in her car, along with Karen's two friends. As they drove, they confronted Karen with the rumours that she had known where Shannon was all along, and they asked her flat out if this was the case. Karen's emotions finally toppled her. She broke down and sobbed uncontrollably for several minutes before making a full confession right there in the car. She was immediately placed under arrest. On the 8th of April, Karen Matthews was formally charged with child neglect and perverting the course of justice. At a later hearing on September 5th, she was also charged with kidnapping and false imprisonment. She was remanded in custody to face trial alongside Michael Donovan. The November 2008 trial heard evidence that Shannon had been drugged to subdue her while she was held with a forensic toxicologist testifying in the court that tests on Shannon's hair indicated that she'd been given to Mazepam for up to 20 months before her disappearance. And this heartbreaking revelation would explain why Shannon so often struggled to concentrate in school. Michael Donovan claimed that Karen Matthews had asked him to look after her daughter for several days and that they would make money from newspaper rewards. He told the court that she had threatened him with violence if he did not agree to take part in the plan. On the 27th of November, Karen gave evidence. She sobbed throughout the entire proceedings and denied having anything to do with her daughter's disappearance, claiming instead that her boyfriend Meehan had told her to take the blame for what had happened. She claimed that she did as she was told because she was in fear of him. In cross-examination, prosecutors said that she had told police a total of five vastly different versions of the same story and they accused her of telling lie after lie after lie. On the 4th of December, Karen Matthews and Michael Donovan were found guilty of kidnapping, false imprisonment and perverting the course of justice. It emerged that the plan had been for Donovan to eventually release Shannon at Dewsbury Market then drive around the corner to coincidentally discover her, then take her to a police station and claim the £50,000 reward. This would then have been split 50-50 between Donovan and Karen. On the 23rd of January in 2009, both Donovan and Karen were sentenced to eight years in prison. Karen Matthews served just half of her sentence before she was released in April 2012 and Michael Donovan was released even earlier. Funded entirely by the taxpayer, Karen Matthews, the woman who had subjected her own child to unspeakable neglect and emotional trauma purely for her own financial gain, was given a makeover and a new identity which enabled her to live anonymously for the rest of her life. Shannon was also given a new identity and eventually placed with a loving foster family in a stable and safe environment. She will never see her mother again. 
Shannon has a social worker who reports regularly on her progress and whilst her current whereabouts remain a heavily protected secret, it is understood that Shannon has found true normality, comfort and happiness with a new family and that she's managed to recover well from her ordeal and put it mostly behind her. So that that brings the end an end to the case and I think I think it's one of those weird stories really where had what happened to Shannon not happened I feel that her life potentially would be worse now uh, she may well have still been living with Karen um or she would have endured many more years of abuse at Karen's hands whereas with what happened as awful as it was and as much as that will emotionally scar her for the rest of her life I think that hopefully she will turn out a well-balanced individual with opportunities that would not have been afforded to her previously. So I know that sounds awful, but that that's what I kind of think. And of course, you would prefer this never happened, but really you would prefer that social services had stepped in before it could have happened and before um, the amount of abuse that Shannon endured was able to happen so um, it's a really sad story it's very different for us a very different story there's no murder and there's actually really a happy ending um, which is really nice for us to do so um, I hope you found it interesting I hope you enjoyed um, our telling of the case as I said next week we'll very much be back to normal it'll be me and Bethan and we'll spend some time just discussing the case that we're going to cover then In the meantime, uh, thank you for listening. We appreciate your support so much. There's loads of you now. So many more people have started listening to the show in the last month. Uh, We were featured on Spotify, which was absolutely amazing. And um, that that saw a a huge boost to to our audience. So um, if you're relatively new to the show, welcome. And, um, And thank you, everybody, for your support. Don't forget, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We're also on YouTube and you can also find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. Sign up and enjoy all of that bonus content and support us and the show. Until next time, we will see you then. Bye. Hi guys, Andy here. You might remember me from my previous podcast, No Remorse. Well, I'm back with a brand new podcast called Serious and Serial UK. The podcast will focus on some of the worst crimes committed by some of the most depraved offenders in British criminal history. Serious and Serial will be launching with brand new content later this summer. You can listen to Serious and Serial on all major podcast providers, including iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn and many more. Please subscribe. You can also check out the show on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Just search Serious and Serial UK. Thank you.